Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kevin. And me, Rob. Did you miss us? We missed you. Did you miss us? Good news is everyone survived. We're all <laughs> still on this planet. We haven't lost anybody else from uh, right. Star Trek Legacy, so um, it's been a fortunate couple of weeks. Uh-huh. And uh, the good news is we have new Star Trek in our lives again, so we will be coming to you weekly for the next little while as Lower Decks Season 3 drip feeds into our eyeballs. And I've been able to finally catch up on this whole Lower Decks thing and yeah. be up to date with everything because I was sadly behind the eight ball. I missed the entire first and second season. Yes. So I had to do a massive catch up over the last couple of weeks. You have what I like to call beginner's mindset. You can still remember what it was like not to know what was going on with Lower Decks. So tell me, having made that transition very quickly over the past couple of weeks, how did it feel going from there to here? How are you feeling about the show now going into season three? Yeah, look, I really love it, but it took a while to get into the right headspace for me. Um, mm. First things first, Becca just annoyed the hell out of me. There yes. was... Like, for me, in those first couple of episodes, there was nothing redeeming about her whatsoever, and there was no real comeuppance for what she was doing. She was sort of, like, cocky and knew everything, but nothing really stuck to her. Mm. There was um, the episode, of course, when the captain, her mum, promoted her. So that's where we got to see a little bit of that frustration in Beckett. Yes, yes. Her rolling off the bed and groaning because she was invited to the poker game is a highlight for me. <laughs> yes, but through the course of the series, learning where she comes from and actually showing all the range of her as a character. Yeah, um, I had that. I think a lot of people had that, that experience, perhaps people of the Bradward Boimler persuasion. Like, I think <laughs> you and I are naturally uh, Look, uh, inclined we are, we... to relate to him. And Beckett Mariner is designed to annoy Brad Boimler's <laughs> of the world. Yes, and there's no you know, sugarcoating the fact that we are uh, very Boimler. Very, very <laughs> Boimler, the both of us. But yeah, I love the setup of it. I love the Cerritos. I love the fact that it's not just we're seeing the lower decks. We're seeing the lower decks of a lower the, class. The fleet. Yeah, this is the third tier ship in the fleet. Yeah, the California class, which I really like, has become a thing. And so it's grown on me. In those first couple of episodes, the references are thrown in right near the end a bit ham-fisted, but they've found this yeah. beautiful way of integrating it all in there. And the cameos have just been outstanding. I mean, you know, uh, Jonathan Frakes is 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 absolute legend and getting um, Tom Paris back was also a, a particularly delightful little moment. So just wait for Harry Kim to come back. Well, there is bound to be a clarinet recital on the Cerritos <laughs> at some point where he will be needed. There, there has to be. There has to be. So, yeah, it's got to that point where, like with Orville, which I really like as well, and I haven't seen the recent series of that, it's started pushing the comedy and the sci-fi was there in the background, but now it's really incorporated. It's become a really confident Star Trek show that hasn't lost its sassy sense of humor and that ability to show the graphic violence of animation is now integrated itself really beautifully. They've got a really nice balance between those type of things where it was still finding its feet a little bit for most of season one. Yeah, much less of a sudden clunk when it switches between earnest Star Trek and comedy cartoon. And now it, it does feel like those things are part of a uniform tone. Yeah, and I found it really interesting. And it was a really good work with character, like when Boyne finally gets his dream of working on uh, a real 
Hollywood type starship with the Titans, mm-hmm. and he just said, "It's just too much. It's too <laughs> much for him. Like just see how he just wants to explore stuff. He yeah. just wants to be a scientist or work on engineering stuff as opposed to being like in battles and warfare and sacrificing himself. I found that really clever and a yeah. really clever way of just say going, yeah, I want all this type of stuff, but I don't want to be like in the movie side of Star Trek. I'm interested to talk more about the level of nostalgia and reference that is built into this show. But I think that's going to come up in our discussion of Season 3, Episode 1. So maybe let us turn our attention to Grounded, the season premiere of Lower Decks Season 3. Beautiful segue. This episode picks up from the cliffhanger of Season 2, where the captain, Mariner's mum, is carried away in shackles for the supposed destruction of Pac-Led Planet. And during this episode, Mariner takes matters into her own hands to try to rescue her mother or at least prove her innocence. But meanwhile, all along, Starfleet is doing the right thing and exonerating her. And the episode ends with a little, you should have trusted the system, which is something Honestly, I've never seen happen before in Star Trek. Like, that should be what Star Trek is, right? But it takes lower decks to show us that sometimes it's not a crooked system. Sometimes the Admiral isn't corrupt. Sometimes the system works. Exactly. And it was that perfect example of what lower decks was set out to be. You've got the characters who have no power and no control, who aren't even invited to the big kids table, having to come up with this weird, wacky bizarre plot to free one of these characters on the higher level uh-huh. and and then that's all happening in the background it's very much like the um the zeppo episode of buffy the vampire slayer season three where we all focus on xander where the end of the world is happening in the side shots or yeah. you know very briefly while he's doing this tiny mission it very much came across like that I went into this episode expecting, as we talked about last time, a retread or revisit or reminiscence on Star Trek III and the great Enterprise theft at the start of that movie. And we did get Mm. a bit of that, but completely unexpectedly, the real movie being referenced here was Star Trek First Contact. They got all the references, not only. (laughs) Indeed. They have none left. They have burned that entire movie for parts. James Cromwell has appeared and Steppenwolf. So you just Uh go... Done and done. That's it. Tick, tick. And it doesn't feel tacked on at all. It was a celebration, which I really love. Yeah. I have learned to go into a Lower Decks episode kind of half squinting, waiting for the reference. And (laughs) I feel like they almost bait and switched us on this. When they decided they were going to the transporter facility to hijack the transporter and beam on board the Cerritos, they went in and they said, now this place is run by a veteran of Starfleet security. So watch your back. And I'm like, oh, who is it going to be? I'm trying to think. Who who would that be? A security person who is now a transporter chief? I don't know. I'm racking my mental roller decks. You're going goodwill hunting type of figuring out the equation. (laughs) Is it O'Brien? Because he runs transporters. But no, he wasn't in security. Who ran security that was... And it's a never-before-seen character. (laughs) Transporter chief, Denny. Carlton Dennis. Yeah, Uh, And and I'm going, who are you, Denny? I feel like I'm meant (laughs) to recognize you, but I don't. I expected a cameo, and I did not get it, Denny. No. How dare you? How the yeah. very well dare you be uh-huh. original? 
So you better pull out Oscar-nominated actors to be this cameo. Otherwise, I'm... Oh, hello, James Cromwell. Yes. <laughs> the uh, You should have seen it coming because they dangled Bozeman, Montana there. Um, yes. And they get the beam over and suddenly they are in first contact land with the big gold statue of James Cromwell's Zephram Cochran. They've got balloons in the shapes of starships, including a defiant balloon, which is a That's nice right. cut from the start of that movie. Always love a good defiant reference. And uh, they've got the phoenix taking off in the middle. Off screen, they all buy James Cromwell hats. So yes. they're all wearing Zephram Cochran hats for the second half of this episode. And it's great to hilarious. go to First Contact World. Even in the future, in the utopian future of Star Trek, they have tacky, cheap. I mean, it's not even like a big Disney World type thing. It's like this dodgy, thrown together place going, no, this is really interesting and exciting. And it's like a fun place. You go, oh, there's no roller coasters. So what's the point? Moving gently along through the flight of the Phoenix and boarding the Cerritos, what's the second half of this episode like for you? It's sort of like more harkened back to earlier episodes. It's, it's quite surprising for me. I was expecting that momentum to carry on from the previous season of all this big intergalactic conflict and Packlet and Klingon conspiracies and all this type of stuff. Well, but the to, surprise is that is all going on. It's just going on off screen. They just went back to go remember what the show is yeah it's called lower decks okay i loved when they get on the ship and they finally get boimler's logs out of his bunk and they play them back and it's him re-recording the logs of the captain but then with these so cringy comments of oh got caught sniffing the captain's chair again <laughs> i got awful gas and i just wish i could fart <laughs> All of that. And the look on his face as he's hearing himself going, yep, that's right. Uh, it's just of so funny. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that blend of the nostalgia of being overwhelmed with references and then taking a step back and going, but we have characters that you care about here too. And those yes. characters being themselves is also really enjoyable to watch. And it's almost like as soon as you get bored of one, they switch to the other. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And that's what you want in a Star Trek show. It really is an ensemble cast that you fall in love with. They've really strengthened that bond between those four lead characters. And they've taken that time, even though they're all nerdy wannabes in their own different way. Even Beckett is, no matter how much she protests too much, there is that hidden Starfleet nerd deep yeah. down. And as we get to see at the end of this episode, the loving daughter as well, who is just scared for her mom when she finally cannot make the ship move anymore and she collapses down at the con mm. and and cries. I'm like, wow, yes, this is two seasons of yes. me learning what this character is about and learning to understand her as a person coming to pay off. Definitely. Mind you, I'm still annoyed by the dad's a bit too blase for my for my liking, hey, it's cool. Everything will work out. I'm fine. I'm an admiral. <laughs> I loved that all of the pot plants in his office all had little computer screens on the pots. It's like <laughs> even the pots for their plants are computerized yeah. in yeah. Star Trek world. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, the thing that this episode will, I think, be remembered for is the last beat where we get to see all of the galactic machinations that took place off screen. We get to see basically an entire Star Trek action movie retold to us with still screened 
artwork, some of it in a kind of painterly comic book style. Yes. Of we had Captain Morgan Bateson lead a elite squad into the Romulan neutral zone, and Tuvok interrogated the criminal in order to extract the secrets to uncover the Paklid Samaritan snare. And the action happened off screen while we were here in the lower decks. Like yeah. that is for me the heart of this episode. Definitely. And and that's what you suggested we reflect on in our tour through Star Trek history this this week, right? Yeah. I gave it the description does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Really. It's like when you go into each of the shows of Star Trek, they mm. go in with a particular modus operandi or yeah. a statement of intention. And it's a weird thing. Sometimes the episodes that we like the best from each particular series are the ones that break that routine. Yes, so yes. what I wanted to celebrate is the ones that are fundamentally good, bad, or crippling what it is are actually the routine. So yes. those episodes that are the routine, what you exactly expect. Yes. When someone pitched this show... They described a certain kind of story. Yes. What is the one episode that most is an example of that story in the series? And for me, when I went back looking for them, I was surprised some of them come early, but some of them come surprisingly late. Mm. So I'm interested which ones we picked out of the history books here. Did you have anything in the original series? I didn't. Did you have one from the animated series? I did not, no. TNG <laughs> is where I came in first. Have you got okay. something from TNG? I haven't got anything from TNG. Good. That sounds like you've got DS9 covered for me. Who would have thought? So that... Who would have thought Rob Lloyd has a DS9 episode? What I'm going to start with Star Trek The Next Generation. And I'm, I, might be, I might not be fulfilling the brief here. So you tell me at the end whether you think this is a good example. But All right, to me, okay. what Star Trek The Next Generation says on the tin is, you know Kirk, Spock, and Bones, but we're going to see how the world of Star Trek has moved on a generation later. So mm -hmm. literally the next generation of Starfleet, of the galaxy. What does that look like? And I went looking for a TNG episode that felt like it fulfilled that promise fully. There are a couple of early ones where they will, they will mine a piece of Star Trek history. I'm thinking of the Naked Now, which replays the Naked Time from TOS. But that's not what I was going for. Where I landed was Star Trek The Next Generation Season 6, Episode 4, Relics. Right. Which is the episode in which the Enterprise-D encounters a crashed ship in which the transporter is locked in a transport loop, and they activate it, and who materializes in the transporter but Montgomery Scott. <laughs> Scotty comes back to life in the 24th century. <laughs> And in this episode, Scotty makes himself a nuisance on the Enterprise D because he walks around going, this isn't how I would run a starship or, oh, all you kids don't know how easy you have it. And <laughs> it, it goes from him being celebrated as a hero, but very quickly becomes like that nuisance that LaForge really just wants to get him off his back because he's he won't stop pestering him in his engine room. It plays with that idea that at a certain point in your life, you realize the world is no longer for you. It is for the next generation. Ah. 
I don't think they could have done this episode much earlier in TNG because it actually subverts a thing that fans were feeling at the start of The Next Generation. Fans oh. were very skeptical of this bald captain and this android on the bridge and a Klingon on the bridge. And just this whole crew, they were like, don't give me new people in a new ship. I love Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That's Star Trek to me. The outcry was just insane. And they've yeah. been showing recently articles that came out in fan magazines or just local newspapers and stuff like that going, Star Trek is James C. Kirk and Spock. Yes. And the whole reason why they created it is because they could no longer afford Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. Imagine that. Imagine there is a time in the world, Kevin Yank, where yes. you cannot afford... Leonard Nimoy and <laughs> William Shatner. Oh, yeah. what a wonderful time that must have been. Oh. Yeah. And everyone saw it. They went, we don't want new people. We want the ones we love. And now six years in, the cast has earned the confidence to say, what if we brought one of our favorite characters from the previous generation on the ship and all our characters that you've grown to love find him annoying? They have had previous like, first episode famously had yeah. a very, very old McCoy there just yeah. for the, look, there he is. DeForest Kelly doing a, the thankless job of appearing in heavy makeup and just walking around for a little bit and then being toddled off. And, of course, you know, Lynn Nimoy showed up for unification. So to get to that point, six seasons in where you go, you know what? We've been quite reverent towards these characters and these figures from the past. Yeah. And it was either Scotty or Chekhov. Yes. The episode takes a really nice turn when Scotty, feeling sorry for himself, goes to the holodeck and recreates the bridge of his original Enterprise and has a drink at the center seat. And then Picard wanders on and Picard recognizes the value of this man, empathizes with how he must be feeling. They have a great drink and talk about the, the ladies in their lives that are, of course, the ships that they fly. <laughs> and it is so touching and a rare, slow beat. It feels like a full act of this episode is just Scotty being Scotty, looking around and going, what is my place in this century? Mm. And seeing the challenging side of that, and then with Picard, seeing the welcome, warm side of that. Yes. Finally, the last third of this episode is ultimately, inevitably, Scotty saving the day. Of course. By flying his crashed ship into the doors of the Dyson Sphere that the Enterprise is locked inside and holding them open so that the Enterprise can fly through sideways just in the nick of time before Scotty's old ship explodes. And to of thank course. him for it, the crew of the Enterprise give him a shuttlecraft that he can fly off into the sunset. And that is the last canonical moment of Montgomery Scott in the universe of star trek that's right yeah he was seen again on screen two years later in star trek generations but that is a much younger earlier scotty he looks that's very right. similar because he's been trapped in a, a transporter buffer the whole time <laughs> but yes we didn't get our send-off until we saw him on the big screen in generations but this was the character's final beat and what a sweet one yeah yeah very much so very much so yeah it's the i saw does what it says on the tin more like one of those average episodes that you kind yeah. of forget, especially like with next gen, it would be how is this new generation mm. solving those problems? So the key line is always, and 
in many ways wrongly described as Kirk always fired first, asked questions later. Uh-huh. Um, so you'd say you would go for an episode that was like the time we solved it with diplomacy. And it yeah. was dramatic anyway. Exactly. Well, show me what you mean. Take me to your, your first episode. Well, I am taking you to series two of Deep Space Nine, uh-huh. episode 10 of series two, mm-hmm. Sanctuary. The episode involves just a run-of-the-mill day. Kira isn't filling out her obligations as first officer on Deep Space Nine because she's dealing with politicians and arguments and diplomacy and all this type of stuff. And she's a freedom fighter. She's not used to any of that. And then through the wormhole comes a refugee ship that's seriously damaged and in danger. And four refugees are transported onto Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And we can't understand them. The translator hasn't been able to figure out their language yet because they're deep from the Gamma Quadrant. And so the whole episode evolves the politics on Deep Space Nine of these refugees coming in and disrupting Quark's bar, how Odo has to deal with these new people on the ship, but also the politics of these refugees needing sanctuary, a place to go. They've decided that their holy land, their place Mm. where they need to go is Bajor. And at this point, Bajor is in the fits of a drought and a food shortage. So it's got all those elements that you will not find. Yeah, it has all the elements. It's got the drudgery of managing a space station. The adventure comes to us through the wormhole. That, I feel, has was the pitch for Deep Space Nine. What if instead of going to the adventure, the adventure came to us? Exactly. And that wormhole is the, the thing that ties it all together. And it has Bajor in the mix as it well. It has Bajor in the mix. It has the dramas on the ship and how the balance of power is distributed there with Quark and Odo. It has Jake and Nog getting caught up with the young refugees and a bit of tension there. We get a new species who are dominated by women and the men are the lower uh, classes within the And they culture. are so alien we can't even translate their language at first. Can't even translate their language and their hair is so Outrageous. high. Outrageously high. But my favorite thing is the 1990s future politics where she comes in and says, all that men are second class citizens because they're too emotional. And Julian Bashir is going, your women are in charge. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. How alien. Yeah. And Dax has to look and go, yep, that's right. That's right. And they're going, (laughs) you're in the future. (laughs) Amazing. And this refugee who arrives she has two men and she sleeps with both of them oh yes and kira doesn't even have one (laughs) so it's your standard d space nine episode it never appears on any of your top five or top ten and i know i looked everyone goes for pale moonlight or beyond the stars or trials and tribulations those ones that really take the format and shift it. Whereas I always remember this episode. I always remember it more than any others because it is everything that D Space Nine should be is there. Every character gets a focus. Every character has a little adventure. Odo is his usual beautiful snarky self. Nog's annoying. Jake's there trying to mediate things. Quark is all in self-interest. Kira is such a brilliant lead character. And Mm. Cisco's there as the guide. Plus, you've got the Bajoran politics happening there as well. So for me, that's D Space Nine. To your earlier 
point, this very by-the-book DS9 episode, is it good? It's one that you watch and you enjoy, yeah. and it's one that you forget. It's not one that you go back and rewatch over and over again, but it yeah. is a good standard D Space Nine. And there's less and less of them once we get into the Dominion War. And there's little hints of it because I forgot when I rewatched it how early the Dominion are brought in, mm. uh, or the th at least the threat of them. The, the and, specter of them, yeah. Yes, yeah. And they've become what is now known thanks to. Buffy and all that type of stuff, the overarching villain. Uh -huh. But yeah, there is a mention of it. They have to flee because they were persecuted by a race who were a part of a group only known as the Dominion. Yeah. So it has all those elements there. And for whatever reason, I always remember this episode because the Gamma Quadrant couldn't be translated. So for the first 10 minutes, they can't communicate. They're so reliant on the Universal Translator, which I find amazing. And that moment when the translator is starting to figure out little words like help or need and all that stuff and have the joy when they finally can communicate with each other. Yeah. I always remember that. Where I'm landing with this is these episodes, they did the formula to its fullest. And they're examples of what the show was before it became something more. Yes. And I almost feel, as the writers, I might have panicked a little once this episode was out it was because it's like, oh, okay, well, we've done it. Yeah. Now we need to find something else to do. <laughs> because our one idea that we had, like, the pitch is done now, so what comes next? Hopefully it's, our characters are strong enough to carry us somewhere else. Oh, I mean, they could have done that format forever, and it would have been like a procedural cop drama yeah. type thing. You know, you see them all the time, the exact same format of a cop show, the, yeah. that procedural thing. They do it with just a different hat on mm -hmm. the lead character. Mm -hmm. But they had to go, well, we've done that. We don't want to do that over and over again. And so then it shifts into being that interplanetary galactical war spectacle when they explore yeah. other issues. The dark side of Star Trek, the murky ethics of Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. So that was for me one that I always go back to for some reason. Yeah. But rewatching it today, I went, yeah, it's, it is that fundamentally basic structure of what D Space Nine would be. I think I have that for Star Trek Voyager. Should I go next? Ah, what? I was interested. I was almost going to pick a Star Trek Voyager, but I went with a different one. So I'll be interested to see which one you pick. Okay. All right. Great. So I'm taking us to Star Trek Voyager Season 1, Episode 10, Prime Factors. Ooh. And I expect no one to recognize that episode by its <laughs> title. I certainly could not have told you the title of this episode, but I remember this story. And it, to me, is an exact mirror of what you just described from DS9. Is It is the episode that is a completely stereotypical episode of Star Trek Voyager as it was originally conceived, before mm -hmm. it became something more. In Prime Factors, the crew of the Voyager are welcomed to a vacation planet for a respite <laughs> at the start of their long journey home. And they discover that this planet has an amazing transporter technology that can transport people 40,000 light years away, which is more than half the distance back to That's Federation right, yes. space. And immediately, everyone's like, this could be it. We could get most of the way home in a single jump. And if, if we could take the technology with it, we could get all the way home in two jumps. We may have solved it right here in season one of Voyager. We we're about to go home, people. But the crew is tested because the 
planet has a prime directive of its own, and it is not allowed to share technology with mm -hmm. outsiders. And as Janeway says in a speech in the Observation Lounge, this is our first time being on the other side of the prime directive, and it doesn't feel very good. <laughs> the planet is populated by a race of pleasure-seeking individuals, and one of the ways that they mm. take pleasure is by telling stories, and stories are the currency of this planet. Some of the crew of the Voyager, in particular the Maquis, who have not yet fully settled into being a part of a Starfleet crew and subject to Starfleet ethics and regulations, they hatch a mutinous plan to steal the library of literature from the Voyager main computer and trade it for this trajector technology that will let them jump all the way home. Classic Maki. At the last minute, Tuvok, trying to spare Janeway the impossible lose-lose situation, says, I'll make the trade. And he beams down, exchanges the library for the device, brings it on board. The device blows up in engineering and is revealed to be fundamentally incompatible with Starfleet mm. technology. It was never going to work, and it only works on this planet. So they're out of luck. But the final scene of this is a beautiful duet between Tuvok and Janeway, where she says, I know you were trying to save me, but that's not what this is. We need to trust each other. Mm. I need to be able to come to you when I'm feeling weak, and you need to be the check on me. And she says, don't use your logic behind my back. Bring your logic to me. <laughs> and he says, my logic was not an error, but I was. And nice. it's just, oh, beautiful. There are parts of this episode that are bumpy. These pleasure-seeking aliens, in particular, the magistrate in charge of them is a singularly creepy guy. <laughs> he is creeping all over Janeway and like touching her face and holding her shoulders when he's talking to her. And it is icky. And yeah. she is doing her best to act like she likes it. Um, so that is not fun. Mulgrew is a very good actor. She is great. She sells it despite everything. But the last third of this episode where Torres is hiding what she's doing from the bridge as they try to make this machine work and send them home and Janeway facing off against Tuvok about this ethical quandary. It is so, so good. Mm. And for me, it is the prototypical episode of Voyager because it has, again, all the elements. Yeah. A possible way home, mm -hmm. blocked by an ethical dilemma. Perfect. And the crew of Voyager fighting each other because half of them don't feel like they are Starfleet. Well done. So for me, Prime Factors is what they thought they were going to do every week when they first invented Voyager. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember that one. That was the interesting stuff that really worked on Voyager. Half a marquee, half a federation. How does that work dynamic? Every mission or every place we're getting to is another way of getting home. Yes. And still sticking to our Starfleet rules. And do we keep to them even though we are on the other side of the universe? As an early episode, we still had Seska yet to be unmasked That's as a right. Cardassian spy. And so she was the most mutinous one. 
Yes. She was the one that could do the irredeemable things and say, oh, um, okay, it didn't work, but let's erase the logs so we don't get caught. And mm -hmm. Torres goes, no, we're going to face the music. And so having that sacrificial character that I guess they knew they were going to get rid of so they could make her do irredeemable things was really exactly. useful. Yes. But also this thing of dangling the possibility of a big jump home, it's something they could probably only do once, maybe twice a season before it would get really tired as a formula and so this is for me the first memorable one of we might be going home and they shifted it to be more like what role do they play within this new quadrant mm. and so what alliances they have made and what type of that's strategies. what the show became yes yeah, yeah as mm -hmm. opposed to what can we find to knock off 10 15 20 you know 60 years of our voyage home. Yeah. I was contemplating one just a bit later on, Learning Curve, where oh. Tuvark takes a couple of the marquee crewmen yes. and, tries, and tries to... Whip them into shape. Whip them into shape. But uh, your choices are far more of a perfect representation. Well, we'll come back to Learning Curve another day. I, I <laughs> another expect. day. We shall yeah. come back when we do a Tuvok-focused episode. Uh-huh. For my second one, jumping ahead to Strange New Worlds. Ooh, wow. Modern, modern Star Trek. Modern is this Star breaking Trek. our rules? Are we actually going into the past of Star Trek if we're going to strange new worlds? Well, you know, that's, we'll need to, you know, like James T. Kirk, we'll fly yeah. out all the time traveling. Uh, well, we've got a whole first season, so surely the prototypical episode is in there somewhere. Definitely. And especially because, you know, we came into reviewing uh, these episodes quite late. And some people have been getting in touch going, they're going to go back and do the other ones? Mm. Um, and, you know, we're very much like F. Murray Abraham in the failed uh, journey to the center of the earth pilot done in the 90s we are forward ever forward <laughs> ever forward but it doesn't mean we can ever forward but looking backward now looking back at some points so we can look in yeah. the rearview mirror so i'm looking at episode six of season mm -hmm. one of strange new worlds lift us where suffering cannot reach Ooh, um, many people's least favorite episode of the season i uh, think but for me it's it is oh chef's kiss beautiful i love the twist ending i uh -huh. love that fundamental structure of going this is good old-fashioned star trek style science fiction yes. of that adventure journeying from location to location interacting with a culture what that culture sees as acceptable what we see as not and do we let this pass by or not as a great sci-fi mm. twist that's very big in the early eras of television sci-fi like with the twilight zone the outer limits yeah and with that twist at the end just to give us a little bit of a stab to the heart give me the broad strokes for those the, like me who are struggling to remember the details there's a idyllic culture there's a young figure this child who is seen as this holy deity within their um, society who is um, coming up to their day of ascension for whatever reason uh, people are trying to uh, kidnap him take him away the child is saved uh, these fanatics have been stopped and it isn't until right near the end that we find out the true meaning of the word ascension this child is what the child was being saved for he is taken down to the depths of the planet and he is pretty much used as an engine to keep the planet going, to keep all the riches that this planet has for this entire society. The only way it works is if this uh, child is sacrificed. He keeps the hovering continents hovering. Exactly. And so that beautiful 
horrifying moment when Pike has done all he could to save this child. Yeah. And this child doesn't even know what they are doing until that moment, the previous holy child's rotting corpse is a child corpse is being taken away the child feels that fear and pike realizes what have we done and he is literally powerless to stop this tradition carrying on and this child is sacrificed it happens anyway many is the episode of the original series in which kirk beams down to a planet takes stock of what's going on and effectively says your society is stupid i'm gonna break it for you and then they leave (laughs) And the first episode of Strange New Worlds has that. Pike beams down into the middle of their council chamber and says, stop fighting, this war is stupid. And you want to know why? Because we did all that. We were stupid. Um, And maybe that is the the prototype of TOS, whereas Mm. Strange New Worlds is, the world is so strange, it gets away from us a little. Yes. we're swept up in it and we don't quite realize what we're dealing with until it's too late. Exactly. I think this was the one that really started to flip things around because people going, oh yeah, it's so positive and so joyous. And it's like Mm -hmm. what real Star Trek is. It's getting away from what Discovery was doing and what Picard was doing in season one, which was so grim and dark and all this stuff. It's so hopeful. And then Mm -hmm. it twisted the knife in at the end and going, yeah, you can still have that hope and that positivity, but you can't have that light without a bit of the darkness. And I think that's where Strange World balances that darkness perfectly in that episode. There's been conjecture about whether it's too dark in later episodes, but here they get that perfect balance of what good sci-fi should be. It should always be opening us up to looking at ourselves and what we do in today's society. It just happens to be set 200 years in the future. It is interesting to me what has been left off of our list. So Discovery. I struggle to pick a stereotypical episode of Discovery because I don't know what that show is trying to be well, because or they set have sh- out to be. They have shifted from season to season. You yeah. Know? Season- they even shifted in the inception <laughs> of the show. Like they changed creators and then they changed writing team yeah. during the first season. So the original idea was to create an anthology show following characters who were not on the bridge of ships like Michael Burnham mm. around the backwaters of the Star Trek universe. But that is like, they threw that concept away early on. And they just made Michael Burnham the greatest person in the history of the universe who can solve every single problem and every yeah. single emotional issue they have is the well, focus. I would almost say that is what it ended up becoming. Yeah. I think they do talk a bit about how early in the run of the show, they had figured out that this was going to be the long form story of how Michael Burnham became captain of a ship from prison to back in charge of a ship. But she's done that now, and the show's still going. Anyway, I struggle with Discovery's identity crisis, and I think many of us do. I do Um, too. I wonder what the stereotypical episode of it being a long road getting from there to here would be. (laughs) I don't know what Enterprise is trying to be. You can't even even lower yourself to say the name of it, can you? (laughs) There are great episodes of Enterprise, and I think if I had to guess what that show was trying to be is, how did Star Trek come to be? How did we go from 
the human world that we have now? How did we make the leap into the future? Yeah. Uh, how did we overcome our humanity to become the humans of Star Trek? I mean, I haven't watched as much of Enterprise. Uh, I have hardly watched any of it. I mean, mm. and I love Scott Bakula. He's my quantum leap man. But yeah. I remember watching that first episode and that got me a little intrigued when like a Klingon is on the planet Earth and they've never seen one before. Yeah. So they're going, what is this? Like Picard doesn't really have a standard episode. Oh yeah, I completely forgot about Picard, which is mm -hmm. the most Picard episode of Picard. <laughs> a conversation for another day. 